Welcome back to the AEC Disruptors Podcast, your platform to help push the AEC industry forward. I'm your host, Christopher Riddell, and on today's episode, we had Bo Billington, founder and CEO of The Free Agent, and also a fellow podcast host. Uh, he was the host of Finding That Next Gear and The Free Agent Podcast. Uh, it was a pretty informative talk. We had the opportunity to talk about this idea of the gig economy that a lot of us may already have some exposure to, or if nothing else, be, um, be used to. And then he talked about this concept of fractional leadership, which was something I really hadn't heard about until uh, he sort of approached me about being on an episode. And it's how we can install these uh, fractional leaders who work maybe a fraction of a work week, but we really are able to tap into their expertise at a fraction of the cost, um, you know, not having to rely on a 40 hour, uh, you know, full time gig, but really on focused time at partial of a work week, but really capitalize on their expertise, what they have to bring to the table and help jumpstart initiatives in a firm. So it's an interesting concept in terms of how we go look at talent for perhaps an executive level or higher. So it was really informative. You know, I hope you get to listen to it, enjoy and check back for more. Joining us on another episode is Bo Billington, founder, CEO of The Free Agent, also the host of Finding That Next Gear and The Free Agent Podcast. How's it going, Bo? It's going well, Chris. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Excited to have another podcast host on the show. We haven't had too many of them, but uh, before we get started, I'd like to you know tell us a little bit about who you are, uh, what The Free Agent is, and then we'll dive into this idea of you know the gig economy and fractional leadership. Yeah, sure. No, I appreciate it again. Thanks for having me on. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Uh, and so just kind of the, in short, I started the company, The Free Agent. Uh, next month, is, it's going to be five years, which is just just crazy. Part of that in corporate America. Thank you. It's a big mile. It's a really big milestone, actually, if you're familiar um, at all with um, entrepreneurship. So quite excited. Of course, it doesn't mean I, I can't go out of business, but I feel like I'm, uh, you know, kind of down the path and developing some old man strength, which is, which is great. But uh, yeah, so we started the company about five years ago, and the free agent, uh, essentially, we, we do executive headhunting as well as management consulting for high growth technology companies. So our target market um, are typically companies somewhere in the 10, 20 million um, re revenue range up to around three to 400 million. And the common theme with these companies is that they're growing very, very rapidly. So all high growth, um, a lot have had funding rounds, maybe series A, series B. Uh, essentially, uh, what, what they're kind of going through are some growing pains, and that's uh, surrounding that's around uh, the, the personnel component. And so that's where we come to the, the plate uh, and really kind of help these companies build out their leadership teams. And we work across the sales, marketing, technology, product, as well as finance silos. And we bring these leadership, leadership folks to the table, um, either uh, on a full-time basis where we're acting as executive headhunter, or on an interim and fractional basis where essentially they're a contractor and maybe they're helping to kind of stand up a department and ultimately try to work themselves out of the job. Um, so that's at a high level. And then um, recently also created a, a virtual exchange um, or you know, kind of a, a marketplace, if you will. And the goal here is really where these executive level um, SMEs kind of go through our vetting process. They become part of our bench. Uh, companies can do the same, and then companies can basically say, "Hey, you know, I'm in need of a fractional chief technology officer." They can find us. In, they can find them in our platform. They create a relationship. 
and ultimately commerce. So that's kind of the, the business at a very, very high level and ultimately kind of the two different business segments that we have. That's exciting. You know, I was, when you reached out, I was excited about this topic because, you know, I think I told you when we first met that I had never heard of the fractional leadership, which we're about to talk about. But my, uh, my father-in-law, who is in commercial lending, had just been approached by a company. Uh, he's getting close to retirement age, but was approached by a company that said, hey, we're starting up this new division um, of our commercial lender, and we need someone to come in here who has connections and expertise and help us start it. And there's no expectation for you to be here for long term. We just right. need help going. And it seemed like an interesting kind of end of you know, your work life uh, to approach. So I thought it was relevant yeah. to, to the topic. So um, before, before we start diving into fractional leadership, you also yeah. brought up this idea, and I've heard this before, um, of the gig economy. Sure. And so let's set the stage, and at least from your perspective, you know, what is, what is the gig economy? And what are the benefits that we're seeing from both an employee and an employer perspective? Yeah, so, so the gig economy has actually been around um, as, long as, as long as work has, right? And so essentially, it's an independent consultant. And these independent consultants um, that are inside the gig economy, so think about gigs, um, can be kind of more of the transactional nature or more of the strategic. And so, you know, if you think about like a freelancer, maybe somebody you'd hire to, um, to work on SEO or to help spin up a website for you, that's an example of somebody in the gig economy. Um, conversely, when you mentioned uh, your father-in-law, I believe you said, who would be kind of more strategic um, and kind of in an executive capacity, he, he'd also be part of the gig economy as well. Uh, and the interesting part here is that um, a lot of these, uh, the people that are in the gig economy have walked away from corporate America for a myriad of reasons. And ultimately they have a skill set that they want to bring to the marketplace and uh, cut out the middleman. So instead of being represented by a company, it could be a consulting company, it could be otherwise, um, they want to kind of go out into the market, um, position themselves as the thought leader, and then basically work directly with their consumer, be it a business or an individual. Um, and so if you think about areas like finance and IT, and again, marketing, um, they've been around forever. And people have been out there as independent consultants within this gig economy. But really in the last three to five years, especially with kind of the millennials pushing a better work-life balance, the gig economy now is really on everybody's radar and, um, and it's exploding. It is, you know, when you, when you think of it that way, yeah, it's been around a long time because we've always seen freelance people and consultants, yeah. but mm -hmm. it does seem like it's really boomed, especially because of maybe after or during COVID, like we all went remote. And then I think <laughs> people realize that, I guess I want to be able to, it's, I'm not going to say pick and choose when I work, but I can directly relay my talents along to that individual, whereas maybe at my company, I'm working as a consultant and I'm already doing all of the work, but maybe I don't see all of those benefits. So do you see this, has it impacted sort of this, you know, we hear about this idea of this like great resignation or the great yeah. reshuffle we're all in. Thing, I mean, do you think yeah. they're, are they go hand in hand? I, I, I do, but I think this has been, you know, reaching a tipping point even pre-COVID, um, been picking up steam. And again, this goes back to the millennials, which they've they've come at it from a different angle than, than previous generations of that, hey, you know, I'm, I'm not alive to work. I work so I can support my lifestyle. And candidly, I, I, love, I love the philosophy. And I feel like we've been caught in the, the old adage of, you know, kind of work hard, play hard, where, you know, sometimes you need to kind of flip that. And that's what's happened. And you mentioned this a, a moment ago, um, but, but ultimately, you know, there's, there's nothing wrong with, with working on your terms, 
And that's really what the gig economy allows people to do. So to go back to your question concerning COVID, um, yeah, so I, I saw this really kind of moving forward and then COVID happened and that's kind of changed everything completely. And, and COVID has really opened up people's eyes to the fact that A, they're not safe necessarily because they're at a, B, at a big corporation. B, um, life is short, things change rapidly. Um, and, and C, you know, being able to kind of work on your terms is actually a really, really nice scenario if you can kind of cobble together enough, enough opportunity to keep you afloat. Yeah, being your own boss, I mean, it does seem like it gives you that small opportunity where you don't have to take on a full company like you have as an entrepreneur, but it does seem like there is that entrepreneurial mindset that goes into an individual that is in the gig economy. No, it's, it's, the, it's the same thing to me, honestly. Like, yes, I have a business, that's great, but, but ultimately we're kind of doing the same thing that an independent consultant would be doing. Now, um, it, it is, I feel like it does get glamorized, you know, but it is tough. You know, ultimately, these, uh, these independent consultants are out there and, and they have to market their solution. They have to get enough um, press, they have to get enough um, visibility, enough eyeballs on what they're doing to sustain a living. And that's the tough part. And I've seen a lot of people that are very, very interested in the gig economy that join it ultimately to leave because they didn't want to do business development. They weren't comfortable kind of putting themselves out there. And so it's not all roses and puppy dogs. Like it's, it's, it's really great for people that can make it work, but it can be very, very uncomfortable for people that um, you know, are not interested in, in hustling. And that, that's part of it because if you're in a gig, th these gigs typically by their very nature, they do end. There is an ending. Mm -hmm right? They're, they're, they don't go on indefinitely. And that's the toughest part that when I talk to executive um, contractors, generally the rub is the fact that they've been in a, this, this gig, this, this, they've been working for five months for a company, um, you know, and they wake up in month five and realize, crap, this is going to end in a month and I have nothing lined up. So they foresee a gap, you know, um, of income in the next three months while they're trying to load back up the funnel. And that can be a big, a big issue and, and, and not palatable for a lot of folks. I could see where it could be culture shock and this idea of the gig economy where, you know, I, I'm working for a consultant and I feel like I'm the one bringing all the skills to the table. I'm doing all of it. I'm going to go out on my own. But then I lose sight of the fact that somebody else is feeding me all of those engagements, you know, there's and, an engine and, behind it, marketing, yeah. sales, promotion, SEO, SEM, all these things that go behind the scenes. And again, I'm not trying to dissuade anybody, but I'm just trying to be, be realistic as well that when you are out there, yeah, you're, you're not under the veil of a, of a corporation and it can be shocking. I mean, it took me seven months uh, to find my first customer when I left. Yep. And, uh, you know, that was, I was married, two kids, just built a house, like I needed, I needed income. Um, so that was, that was a shock. And it, it's take, it, it took a little while to kind of find some stability, but it is, it is possible. And, you know, what I personally enjoy about it is that, you know, I'm in control of my own destiny. Um, you know, the ceiling is, is, is limitless in regards to what I can do. I can work on my, on my own terms. Um, but the flip side is that, you know, I'm going on vacation in a few days and I will have to bring my computer because I will have to stay kind of, you know, up to speed with my emails and can't come home to, to 400 because if I'm not billing, you know, I'm not getting paid. Yep. Yeah, no, I mean, it's tough. Um, before we start talking about this idea of fractional leadership, which I think ties right in, I'd be interested, you know, we talked about how you're the host of these two podcasts. Talk a little bit about what, what each one of those are and, you know, what kind of message are you driving? Sure, I appreciate the plug there. So I've got two podcasts. One is 
um, in the namesake of my organization, uh, The Free Agent. And essentially what we do is we um, interview uh, practitioners, right? So subject matter experts, uh, executive level folks that, um, you know, have a very specific skill set that ultimately we'll, we want to share in the world. An example could be like customer experience as it pertains to technology companies, um, you know, creating sales funnels, being a chief revenue officer, things like that. Um, so we ultimately, you know, look to, to speak with independent contractors that are out in the market, have a very, very specific skill set, and then kind of explore what they do in hopes of sharing that with, you know, high growth companies. Um, the other podcast that I that I have is called Finding That Next Gear, and um, that's I kind of I really enjoy that because that's that's kind of mono mono discussion between entrepreneurs. And so, you know, I looked to speak with companies, uh, sorry, with founders that took an organization from back of a napkin from inception to you know to high growth, and really talking about kind of like the trials, tribulations, the pitfalls the success, but what really happens. And candidly, I feel like, you know, with the news, all we see is that, you know, somebody created a company in six weeks and sold it for a billion dollars, but they never talk about what went into scaling, growing, and how tough that can be personally, financially, um, everything. And so the hope with the, the Finding the Next Year podcast is to really kind of give a, a glimpse under the covers. What does it take to be an entrepreneur um, and, and how tough that can be on, you personally, professionally, and some of the risks that you need to take along the way. That sounds really cool. I, I read recently a book, um, How to Fly a Horse. I think it's what it was called, How to Fly a Horse. Mm -hmm. I have to look up, I can't remember the name um, or that, the, that the really author. Cool. That's not the real title, then you know, that's awesome. That, it's the title. I just don't remember who the author was. But what's really cool about that book, um, and it's dry at times, but what's really cool about that book is it talks about the idea of creation as not being some like extraordinary thing. And it yeah. talks about, you know, you mentioned all we see is somebody built a company and then they sold it, you know, or we just see Elon Musk is, has all these billion dollar companies. Wow. He's just, you know, brilliant genius. And, you know, he may be smart, but um, what the book talks about is it kind of tries to help normalize some of that. And it says, um, you know, all of those individuals, you know, all the failures that they went through and yeah. we just see like the success, success. but, yeah, we don't see that it was constant failure and little incremental change and little bits over time. And, you know, it talks about the Wright brothers and how they, you know, learn to fly. It talks about Thomas Edison and the light bulb. And, you know, I learned a thousand ways how not to make a light bulb. Um, we all seem to get hung up on like the glamorous part of success. And we see IPOs and all of these, but we never get to see all the stuff that got them there. And so what's really interesting is it's really trying to say like anybody can come up with an amazing idea. Anybody yeah. can do this. They're not, spe I mean, they're special, but they're not special. Uh, they're just individuals who tried and kept trying and kept failing and kept trying and, and they finally were successful. And so it's, it's interesting, you know, when you mentioned like we just see that part of it, but yeah. there's so much more that it helps just a regular person say, oh, I can do that. No, so I, I totally agree. And I'm going to check out the book, How to Fly a Horse. And what's interesting about what you said about Thomas Edison, Elon Musk, all those individuals, uh, as well as the people that I interview, which is, I haven't interviewed Elon Musk yet. That's on, that's on my target list. But Just go you know, on what, Twitter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. What I found, though, is that the common characteristic with all these people is literally perseverance. Yep. And it's the fact that they had this idea, this concept, and it bugged them. Like they had to fix this problem, whatever that problem may be. 
and they worked and worked and got up every day and got, you know, they failed and failed and failed. My, the company that I, that I have, you know, five years in, we do, um, it's quite different than, than what I thought it was going to do initially. Mm-hmm. You know? And that's just kind of, again, um, having to, to, to be able to pivot, but more so persevere through getting knocked down and realizing, crap, this idea that I thought that was phenomenal was wrong. Yep. And that pivot is important too. I mean, when, uh, when I looked at the idea of innovation, that's one of the things I was kind of asked to do here was look at innovation. And, you know, I, I had interviewed a director of innovation at Gresham Smith, and he talked about getting outside the building with your idea. And, mm-hmm. and the thought is, you may have this great idea, but you can't fall in love with it. You know, if you're trying to totally create a business, you can't fall in love with that first idea, because it may not work. And, you know, like you said, all of these individuals persevered and they continued to try. And honestly, yeah, I mean, there may be some really special people among that group, but most of them, they just tried to outwork everyone else and they kept at it. And that's what's really cool about the book is it tries to, you know, humanize a lot of these people that, you know, we almost idolize as, wow, we'll never be able to be like that person. And it just says, all they did was they kept working and trying out their ideas. Well, also too, though, what, what to add to that is that they also, you know, you have to take a chance. And yeah. when I when I wanted to start my company, I had the concept three years before I jumped out of corporate America. And everybody I talked to about, I was so excited about this idea. They all worked in corporate America, and to them, you know, the, the amount of risk that I was going to inject to my life and my marriage was just—I mean, it was, it was very, very hard for them to understand that. Uh, and candidly, they didn't necessarily understand the idea. Um, and it, it, it stymied my interest in jumping out for about two to three years because I started thinking to myself and questioning my idea, am I crazy? Uh, and finally, you know, I, I came to the point where it's like, hey, either this is a hobby or I'm going to do this, you know, full time. And I jumped out of corporate America. And that's another backstory we could talk about on another date. Um, but I had to try it. I had to take a risk, yep. you know, and that's the um, I'd say that's the part, too, about entrepreneurship that a lot of people um don't think about as much that you sometimes you gotta lay it on the line and see if your idea is a good one. And sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. And sometimes you just need to kind of pivot a little bit to figure out, you know, where your North star is. Yeah. And supporting yourself with that strong support system um, that when you have that idea that you don't have a bunch of naysayers. So, I mean, even with the gig economy, if I say, Hey, I I think I could take my talents and put them out there. You know, I need, you know, um, family and people around me that help support it because Totally. Like yourself, you'll, you'll not get necessarily get beaten down, but you, you'll really start to question. And I've had opportunity or chances along the way where certain individuals, maybe I respected or I thought I respected, mm-hmm. would say something that made me question, oh, maybe I don't have the skill set that can do this. And you, totally. you start to kind of go back. And so, I mean, I really think that makes a lot of sense in terms of how it impacts not just entrepreneurs, but I mean, anyone going into this idea of the gig economy really are entrepreneurs or solopreneurs at that. Hundred percent, they're entrepreneurs, and there's going to be people that are naysayers. Why would you? Why would you leave your steady job to go follow your passion? You know, to me, mm-hmm. you know, to that, I say, why would you not go follow your passion? Right? I mean, yeah. life's super short. Why would you do something you're miserable? And I was, I was miserable. Literally, it was kind of like office space. Every day of my life was a worst day, um, and it, that just that just didn't work for me. And yeah. so that's kind of when I was like, you know what, I got, I got to try this. I can always go back if it doesn't work. And same thing with the gig economy, with being an independent consultant, whatever you want to call it, however you want to frame that up, you know, um, if you've got this burning desire to do this thing, um, at some point you're going to need to take a chance, um, but you can always go back yeah. if need be. Yeah, it's not permanent. I mean, anything we do, you know, sometimes I think the worst decision you can make is not making one. 
totally. because you can't react, you can't do anything or pivot. So um, no, I think that's awesome. So I think this really is a great transition into, you know, this next idea of fractional leadership. You've kind of brought it up. You talk about the free agent helps uh, install these type of individuals. Um, first, what is fractional leadership? Yeah, so it's, it's a term that's tossed around quite a bit now. And the easiest way to explain what it is, it's a, it's a fraction of a work week, right? So, so some, some amount of time less than 40. So I've got consultants that are billing, you know, 10 hours a week, 20 hours a week, 30 hours a week, um, whatever that scenario is, but it's not a full-time uh, contractor, which everybody considers full-time is 40 hours. Uh, and so typically somebody who's doing fractional work will um, either maybe have one foot into retirement, similar to your father-in-law, it seems, um, you know, others, maybe they exited um, successfully an organization Maybe they're an independent consultant, but generally fractional people are looking to put together a couple of different um, gigs uh, instead of working for one employer. So it's a kind of a, a different mindset, right? Where I'd, I'd rather, Bo Billington would rather work for four companies, 10 hours a week um, versus one company, 40 hours a week or some sort of scenario similar there too. Make sense? Absolutely. And so are these typically on some type of contract basis or am I coming in for a period of time to help? stand up a department or stand up an organization? In my opinion, um, fractional workers and consultant workers, typically their job should be to work themselves out of a job, right? So the capacity in which we work would be, you know, a budding organization that's looking to maybe stand up, um, you know, customer experience. I mentioned that as an example earlier, but they're looking to mm -hmm. stand up customer experience and they don't have the funds to hire somebody full-time. So they would go out into the marketplace and go find somebody that, that, you know, would have, have a high hourly rate, but they don't need to pay them for 40 hours, right? And so essentially they'd be getting access to an expert, somebody typically who's done it before and can, can help them really kind of fast track success at a fraction of the cost. That's kind of the whole value prop is that you're getting access to people that you wouldn't have been able to get access to previously because candidly, you wouldn't be able to afford them at that 40 hours per, per week. The AEC Disruptors podcast is brought to you by Applied Software. With solutions for the modern project, Applied Software is on a mission to transform industries by empowering clients and champion innovation with real-world expert consultants. Their comprehensive array of solutions for the AEC, MEP, and manufacturing has a singular focus, helping you achieve higher performance. With software, training, support, consulting, and custom development, Applied Software has you covered. Visit asti.com and let them know we sent you. Um, when these typically happen, you know, a customer or uh, say a company decides that they need somebody to head up department X uh, and, and they come to an organization like you, are they coming with certain requirements that they're looking for or are they more coming and really trying to find a vision? You know, is that fractional leader bringing a vision or just help facilitating a plan? It's both. You know, a lot of times people come to me and they think they need a fractional leader, but after further discovery, we, we kind of decide that they need, you know, either a full-time person or maybe that role just doesn't make sense right now. Mm -hmm. um, conversely, other companies will come to me and say, hey, I need a full-time you know, chief revenue officer as an example. And we'll do, go through discovery and kind of figure out that they don't really, that it's a little early phase for them currently. And bringing somebody on a fractional basis makes a little bit more sense. 
So yes, companies come to us with kind of this vision, but part of our goal is to really kind of help suss out the vision, make sure that you know what they're trying to accomplish is the right fit at the right time. Then we'll go have conversations with these fractional experts, bring them to the table, and then collectively kind of come up with a scenario that makes sense for all parties. So they've got this concept, you know, of what they want to do, but it, it's not, you know, it's not that simplistic. We have to go and find the right person because personality time, you know, personality types and traits and how people interact, especially at the executive level, is extremely important. So we have to find that person and then have conversations about the right model that works for all parties. Did I answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. You know, because it, I was curious about um, even like the, some of the challenges that we would run into using fractional leadership because mm-hmm. uh, depending on like the length of these contracts, I mean, is there a period of time that's really just kind of a getting to know you type of experience? And then there's the, you know, pushing for a, a roadmap of sorts. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so it depends on the, the actual scenario, but sometimes, you know, may start with a, a two week, you know, audit or health check of sorts, just to kind of get somebody in, understand personality types and really get a good lay of the land. Um, other times, you know, the, the issue is a lot more apparent. And so um, uh, kind of a, a health check, if you will, is not, is not as, as necessary, um, but you're able to kind of put together programs and projects that, you know, really, again, kind of, um, you know, makes sense for both parties. And we, you don't get into that kind of component until you're starting to have a discovery session. Um, but a lot of times these, you know, you may start with a fractional leader of, you know, five, 10 hours a week. And that engagement um, may shift, may change, may grow. Um, really depends because all these companies are literally living, breathing organisms um, mm-hmm. and they change week by week. What do you say is the biggest challenge for somebody that wants to take on a fractional leader? So from a company perspective, you know, vetting talent is always kind of one of the toughest parts and and access, Mm -hmm. you know, it's really, it's really having a clear understanding as to the need and the personality. And that's kind of one of the roles that we play is sitting down with these leaders and doing a very, very deep intake and discovery session in hopes of ultimately kind of creating a persona, right? So we know, Hey, the person you're looking for is approximately this, this much experience with this background, with this pedigree, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's one of the hardest parts is really kind of, you know, because um, companies, they, they know they have an issue, but they're not exactly mm-hmm. sure sometimes what the issue is and, and what type of person can help them fix the issue. And so our role is really kind of sitting down with them and, and trying to kind of put a box around that person, that individual, and then going out into the market and find them. And those two, I, those two areas I would say are the toughest is, is the access and really just getting your hands around who. I could see how education of just even the concepts important because, um, you know, how, how mainstream is fractional leadership? I know, I mean, I hadn't heard of it, which means nothing, but are there, (laughs) you know, there, there has to be other companies that don't even know this is an option. I I think they're going to headhunters and be like, you know, we need a, this type of individual, let's go find one. I feel like most companies are are just programmed and, and people as well, right? Like most of us just think, Hey, we're thinking about work. It's full time. You work for a company and, and conversely companies think when you hire somebody, it's full-time, right? Yeah. They're, they're a full-time employee. And so a big part of kind of this, and, and like my job at, at my organization has been education, right? Coming on podcasts, having discussions, letting people know that there are alternative ways, especially for budding companies and high growth companies. You know, they, they think that maybe, Hey, I've, I've got to save X amount in the bank so I can hire somebody full-time when in reality, you could probably get started a lot earlier and cheaper with somebody fractionally. 
but mm -hmm. it, it's all around education. And I feel like COVID has kind of helped force this into the mainstream, um, which has been good for business, candidly. Yep, I can imagine. Um, yeah, but it's, it's, it's really around just kind of, you know, reminding and showing and teaching and educating companies that there's, you know, you don't have to do it the same way you've done it for the last 30, 40 years. I could see here there's hesitancy by some, you know, I mean, if, if somebody thinks they're hiring, uh, you know, a chief revenue officer, but that individual is also working at three other firms, I'm sure people question like, how much access am I going to have? Are they going to be able to support what we need? I mean, do you see yourself running into those sort of objections when people think of fractional leadership? Totally. And that's part of why like the scoping discussions are so important, you know, having everybody in the same room, you know, ultimately kind of putting together a racy matrix where you've got kind of roles and responsibilities and, and access um, and SLAs. So that's, that's really, really important to an engagement. So expectations are clear. And I'd probably say that's one of the most important components is the education, I'm sorry, is the expectation piece, right, on both sides, candidate, company. And a lot of the independent consultants, what I've found a pitfall is that they do overextend themselves and they're too available sometimes to their customers. And that can, that can cause burnout, right? So what's really important for them is to put some kind of, you know, brackets around their availability, response times, and try to stick to that. I mean, granted, there's going to be situations where there's an escalation, there's an emergency, what have you. If that becomes the norm, then these, these you know, free agents, you know, really need to kind of take an audit, audit and, and reestablish some boundaries. But Absolutely. It's not, for, it's not for everybody, Chris, honestly. That's, that's the thing, too, is companies that don't understand that, you know, that are extremely worried about access, um, you know, probably not the best fit for somebody to, to leverage somebody in the gig economy. No, I mean, I, I get that even in my uh, position or past positions where you work with a customer and there is zero expectation at the beginning that I'm going to answer anything within four hours, for instance, but I keep answering within 30 that. minutes of an email over and over and over and over and over again. So you fast forward a month, you get an email, you don't respond until two and hours later you get another email, you know, there's, you've set that expectation or even I've, I, at one time I'd answer phone calls on a Sunday and then I'm like, you know what, this isn't important for today. Well, right. then you sort of reestablish an expectation of I'm not going to respond during this period of time. Mm -hmm. So I can see where from the fractional leaders perspective, it's really important to have those set boundaries or you are just working around the clock for four different. So then instead of one full-time job, you almost have like four full-time jobs. Yeah, and it leads to burnout. And it's the same thing that happens in entrepreneurship. I, I've got to check myself and I, I've got parameters. You know, for instance, I try not to be on my computer or my phone from five to seven thirty. Mm -hmm. I'll do some emails in the evening, but you know, spending time with my family is very, very important to me. And staying married is important. You know, I'm not trying to be the entrepreneur that just puts work first. Yep. And so I, I I have to reestablish boundaries from time to time and realize, hey, you know, Rome's not burning, like you know, like it, it's okay. I can respond tomorrow. I'm not gonna go out of business. Uh, but it, it's tough. It's a mindset shift. Some people are successful at it. And I've, I've seen others that, you know, burnout can be a real thing. And they go back to corporate America, even though the, the, the barriers are, um, you know, are, 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 are kind of fake, they're, allowed, they're, they're able to feel like they can establish them in that setting. I, re I respect that as an entrepreneur, because I think, because, you know, we sort of talked about seeing all these sort of instant successes and, and so many of them are workaholics. And so I think we've been programmed to believe the only way to run a successful business is to be a workaholic and not yeah. devote your time anywhere else. And, and maybe that's true. I don't know. I just don't believe that's true. Um, I believe there is a balance. And I believe that more and more as 
other employees expect work-life balance, customers are going to start to begin to expect it as well. Mm -hmm. And so they will understand if you say, I'm not going to answer between five and seven, because that's, you know, dinner and kid time. Yeah, yeah totally get it. Cause we have kids also, you know um, I think we've gotten so used to just continuously putting our, especially with email and phones and whatever, I'm just constantly working, but no one's asked me to constantly work. I just was doing that to myself. Yeah, you kind of do it naturally. You know, one thing that I did five years ago when I started my company is I turned notifications off on my phone. So like I, I get text messages because, you know, who, who doesn't? Mm-hmm. But I do not get email. Um, calendar reminders I get, um, but nothing from LinkedIn or otherwise. And that's been a godsend. And I've actually found that I check my email enough where it's probably like every five to 10 minutes anyways, right? Yep. Um, I'm just not getting dinged every, every two minutes. And that's been um, pretty good for productivity, and something you can do when you have your own company, it's a little bit tougher when you're, you're working in corporate America. But yeah, establishing parameters, establishing, um, you know, bookmarks around your day, super important. And I think it's important, um, regardless of whether or not you are an entrepreneur, an independent consultant, or an employee. I mean, we all have our own lives, and it's very, very easy to let work invade. And I've, I've been guilty to that. And in fact, I find myself close to burnout from time to time when I, you know, get into those clips, and I've got to kind of reset you know, um, some boundaries for myself. The, uh, those notifications are wild. I mean, when you read, if you read any productivity article or, you know, how to be productive or highly productive people, they talk about not answering emails all the time, not, uh, looking at those notifications. And I remember I w- it was while I was watching a documentary on, it was about Instagram or Facebook or just social media in general. And, and, and they're really algorithms almost programmed to hit that person, it's like, oh, you haven't been on LinkedIn in a while. Let me send you this notification of you yeah. have five notifications. Go check. Um, and each one of those interruptions, you know, is the amount of pers- time it takes to get back on task is so great. And sure. so it, it makes sense that, especially with a fractional leader, I would suspect if you're only working a certain amount of time a week, you need to be as focused as possible during that period of time for this, you know, contract to be successful. You have to be able to minimize those distractions. Do you find fractional leaders um, have a difficult time just, you know, staying engaged the full 20 hours? You know, if I work 40 hours a week, I'm not productive 40 hours. I'm probably productive 30, 28. You know, how does that relate back to a fractional leader? I feel a lot of times um, the companies get the biggest benefit. You know, especially especially if somebody's billing just you know sixteen uh, hours uh, per week or biweekly, whatever that that magic number is. Um, but if you're just kind of billing, not, not tracking their time, a lot of times the companies actually get the benefit, and these people end up working more than they originally sought out to do. And so, you know, sometimes people tracking their hours is really really appropriate. But I do feel too with the fractional piece, you know, you're not wasting as much time. Time is valuable. Um, there's less time to waste. And therefore, if somebody's working 20 hours, they're likely working 20, if not 22, 25 hours. That makes a lot of sense. You know, I, I've worked with some engagements where we'll say like, you have 30 hours a month to do whatever, a certain amount of task. And what we find is, and one of the huge competitive advantages, which I think extends to fractional leadership is during those 30 hours a month, I'm not getting up and getting water or coffee in the office. I'm not chit chatting with the people that are in the office. Like those 30 hours, I'm doing 30 hours of stuff and it directly translates back to them. So it makes a lot of sense that when the less time you have, 
you're and if you know you're and maybe it's not the case i don't know but i mean at least for me if i went in no i'm helping build something for six months yes i'm gonna connect and you know get to know everyone but there's a different mentality at least for my sake that i'm not going to be here for five years sure. i'm really helping them complete a task you're laser focused on the job at hand 100 uh, percent and, and i'd say the most you know, uh, the least productive I've been has been in an office setting, right? You know, you show up, there's meetings, there's discussions, most last a lot longer than they should. You're grabbing lunch, you know, you're getting caught in traffic. You, you, you turn a 40 hour week into 20 hour per week of productivity hmm. very, very easily. And in the fractional setting, I do feel these individuals are laser focused. And I think you bring up an excellent point, Chris, is that, you know, the relationship is kind of more transactional in that, hey, I'm here to do this thing. So I'm going to try to block out as much of the noise as possible. And there's also different, um, there's different engagement models with, with contractors. I mean, technically, by the very def definition and legally, they can't go to a happy hour. So they need yeah. to be treated differently than an employee, which, again, I think leads to a, a higher level of focus and productivity, which is a boon for both the company as well as the individual. No, that's pretty interesting. Um, so, you know, what is, what does the process look like? Like, you know, how long in general does it take to, to place a fractional leader? And, you know, from the time a company perhaps reaches out to you, you mm -hmm. know, what does it look like getting that person placed? So very, very tough question to answer because there's just a, a myriad of different scenarios, but ultimately we, we go through our process and that's sitting down with the company, understanding their needs, um, understanding, again, kind of trying to create a persona of who this individual is. And that can take a week to two weeks. And then we go out into the marketplace. We leverage our network and then go out to the marketplace and, and look for, you know, free agents that are out there as independent consultants that are available. And then we bring them through our vetting process. Uh, and so, you know, this can take anywhere from, from two to three weeks, probably on the short end to a month, two months, if we're looking for a very, very obscure resource. Mm -hmm. So, so very, very tough to answer, but you know, the vetting component is very, very important for the companies when looking for a fractional leader, because, you know, it's, it's personalities, especially at the executive sector. Um, as we kind of wrap up, you know, what is your advice to a company that maybe is, a high growth company or a startup and they're thinking about adding certain key executive uh, individuals. Yeah. So I would, I would engage with, with firms like mine or executive headhunting companies out there and just have conversations. It's, it's free to talk, uh, but ultimately, you know, leverage companies that could be a sounding board um, for your next hire. Uh, cause, cause ultimately sometimes when you think that you should, you, you've got to have this, this full-time resource, you know, candidly, maybe a fractional could be better. could be quicker, um, it could help, help you find success more. So um, really doing your, your due diligence on the need is, is critical. Engaging companies like ours is critical, but also using your network. I feel like the majority of successful relationships um, are going to come from a referral of sorts. Either it's the company um, that finds somebody through their own network or leveraging um, you know, a, a business such as mine to, to, to go out into the market and help them vet and find somebody. Uh, if somebody wanted to try to get a hold of you, how would they do that? Sure. So um, website, uh, thefreeagent.com is a good way on LinkedIn, Bo Billington, B-E-A-U, Billington. And then my email is simply Bo at the free agent, B-E-A-U, not B-O, at thefreeagent.com. Probably the easiest way to, to connect. But happy to have any conversations about this. I mean, this is what I do uh, and I actually enjoy it. Uh, I love connecting people and uh, I'm good at my job.
No, that's exciting. So it's it's Bo and not Boo. <laughs> yeah, it's not Boo. Exactly. Yes. They threw, they threw some folks off. That's funny. No, you know, I really do appreciate you reaching out. Um, this, yeah. Again, this was a topic we never really thought to approach. And it's something that's really interesting. And it's something I don't see a whole lot in the architecture, engineering, construction space, but is so relevant because we have all these positions also. Um, so it seems like what you're talking about kind of can go across industries. 100%. Yeah. So, so tech is our focus, but like, you know, there, there's a multitude of firms and companies such as, you know, similar to mine that are out in a multitude of other types of marketplaces. And I'm sure there's a company similar to the free agent that's in the architectural space as well. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it comes down to, again, companies just doing inventory of what they really need and being open to, to look at, all, at alternatives. It doesn't always have to be, a, you know, a full-time resource. Absolutely. You know, I, I mean, I could see where there's a lot of firms, you know, architecture firms, for instance, that are trying to get into a certain project typology. Maybe they want to get into healthcare work, Absolutely. Um, but they can't just start doing that. And so this idea of fractional leadership is an interesting one to find individuals who have that skill set, have those connections and can help build those type of departments and so it seems relevant. Yeah, go, go find a SME. You know, like I've had to do that as well, where I'm looking at different revenue streams for my company. And what am I doing? I'm going to the market. And I'm looking for a subject matter expert with that background that I can hire or bring on in some capacity and have access to kind of, you know, um, their, their thought leadership and really help me kind of explore and move into that um, specific, you know, um, revenue stream. Well, Bo, I've enjoyed it. Thanks for uh, reaching out and thanks for the good conversation. Hey, Chris, really appreciate the time. Sincerely, thanks for having me on. Good chat with you. Thanks for listening to the AEC Disruptors podcast. Enjoy this episode. Leave us a rating or review while sharing with your friends and coworkers. I'd love to hear from you. Send me a LinkedIn request or follow our LinkedIn page to let me know if there's a topic you'd like to hear. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening. The AEC Disruptors is directed by Christopher Riddell produced by Todd Wyant and edited by Eric Daniel. The AEC Disruptors is an applied software production, copyright applied software 2022.